Good morning, Moody Church. Let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 41. If you need to use, and please do, the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you'll find Genesis 41 on page 34. As you turn, let me say what an honor it is to be able to open the Word of God to you this morning, not least of all because I'm cognizant of the number of extraordinarily godly men who stood behind this pulpit, men like Dwight L. Moody and Erwin Lutzer and Bill Birchie and Larry McCarthy and Michael Best and Ed Stetzer and so many others, and we thank the Lord uh, that this pulpit has been so wonderfully filled week after week through the years. What a gift, what a gift. Now you may remember if you were here last week when Pastor Michael preached on uh, Genesis chapter 40 that Joseph, the Jewish patriarch, has been in prison for some period of time there on false charges. And at some point during that time in prison, two of the officials of the king of Egypt, commonly known as Pharaoh, two of Pharaoh's officials were also thrown into prison. They had dreams. Joseph is an interpreter of dreams by the power of God. Joseph gave interpretations to both of those dreams to the one official. He said, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your office, and please, I beg you, when he does, please don't forget me back here in this prison. The man was restored and promptly forgot Joseph. And that's where we pick up as we begin Genesis chapter 41, hear the word of the living God. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the, set, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer, the one who had been in prison with Joseph, whose dream Joseph had interpreted, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. 
A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh proceeds to repeat his two dreams to Joseph. We'll pick up at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And Joseph proceeds to suggest that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, should find a wise man whom he could appoint to store large amounts of grain during the years of plenty so that Egypt would be able to survive the coming years of famine. Let's pick up the reading in verse 37. This proposal of Joseph pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. May God add his blessing to this our reading from his holy and inspired word. It's quite a story, isn't it? In just a few hours, a Hebrew who had been a slave, now a prisoner by false charges, is made apparently second in command of all the kingdom of Egypt, perhaps the greatest kingdom in the world in its day. 
Joseph's rise from that pit of a prison, and verse 14 calls it a pit, to the position of second in command of all Egypt is utterly breathtaking. Except that Joseph is not the main character in Genesis chapter 41. By Joseph's own testimony, God is the main character in Genesis 41. God is the main character in the entire Joseph story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, which is why the pastors have appropriately titled this series of messages, The Sovereignty of God in the Life of Joseph. And the sovereignty of God is the attribute of the Lord on which Genesis 41 particularly focuses. So here's where we'll be going today. First, I'll offer a very brief definition of the sovereignty of God. Then second, we'll see from the text three characteristics of the sovereignty of God that Genesis 41 particularly emphasizes. And then finally, we'll ask, how does God want his people that is, those who by God's grace are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, how does God want his people to respond to his exercise of his sovereignty in our lives? And the answer I'll suggest to you is God wants us to respond with delightful trust. But first, a suggested definition. I would suggest to you that God's sovereignty means that God rules his creation in such a way that Ephesians 1.11 is true. Namely, God rules his creation in such a way that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The statement of faith of the Moody Church is very similar. It reads this way. We believe in one God in whom all things have their source, support, and end. Since he is not limited in knowledge or power by any external forces or the will of his creatures, what he purposes will come to pass. Now, to be sure, the Bible asks the people of God to hold in tension two truths, the sovereignty of God on the one hand and the responsibility of humans on the other hand to choose and obey and believe. It is a tension we see woven throughout all the pages of Scripture. But the focus of Genesis chapter 41 is on the sovereignty of God. And so we want to honor the focus of our text for this morning. The first characteristic of the sovereignty of God, which I think this passage especially highlights, is that God's sovereignty is an exhaustive 
sovereignty. Now, by the adjective exhaustive, I mean that God's sovereignty extends both to the big picture events of the world, like the rising and the falling of nations, to the small picture events of the world, like the minutest details of your life and my life. For example, in this passage, God is speaking to Pharaoh through these dreams and through Joseph. And understand that according to the Egyptian religion, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was the representative, the special representative of the gods on earth. And after his death, Pharaoh himself would be made a god. But God, through these dreams and through the interpretation that Joseph gives and what Joseph says, says to Pharaoh, you would be God. You're not in control of the future of Egypt. And your gods, Isis and Osiris and Ra and Horus and Amun and all the others, they aren't sovereign over the future of Egypt. I, the God of Joseph, the God of his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I am sovereign over the future of Egypt. And Egypt will survive the coming famine only, Pharaoh, because I have alerted you to it through the dreams that I gave to you and through my servant Joseph. If I had chosen not to, Egypt would have ceased to exist at some point during the seven years of famine. Joseph makes this point clear with what he says to Pharaoh. Look at verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, don't miss how audacious verses 25, 28, and 32 really are. This is a Hebrew. A Hebrew who came to Egypt was brought to Egypt against his will as a slave. A Hebrew who has just now been cleaned up and taken out of prison and brought before Pharaoh. A Pharaoh who believes that after his death he'll be a god. A Pharaoh who worships other gods. And Joseph has the temerity by the grace of God to do what God would call you and me to do in the same circumstances, namely to testify to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, your gods are not gods. You, Pharaoh, are not God. Your gods are not sovereign over the future of Egypt. You, Pharaoh, are not sovereign over the future of Egypt. There is a God in heaven. And he, Pharaoh, 
will either enable by his perfect will Egypt to survive or Egypt will cease to exist because of the sovereign workings of his will. Now what Joseph says in verses 25 and 28 and 32 is of course affirmed in the rest of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in his great sermon to the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17 declares to them, the God you do not know, the God whom I worship is the God who raises nations up and who takes nations down and who even sets the boundaries within which the various peoples live. Daniel 4, 34 to 35, by the same token, declares that God alone is sovereign over the rising and over the falling of nations. And not only that, God is sovereign over the stars and over the planets and over the invisible spiritual beings who inhabit the universe. God is sovereign over the big picture, but he is also sovereign about the minute, over the minutest details of your life and mine. You see, he says to Pharaoh this as well, you would be God. Don't you know that I alone, if I so will it, can enter into your little Pharaoh brain in the middle of the night and I can cause your little Pharaoh brain to have whatever dreams I want your little Pharaoh brain to have. The rest of the Bible affirms the sovereignty of God over the minutest details of our lives. Jesus in Matthew 10, 29 to 30 says not even a bird falls to the ground dead apart from the sovereignty of God. God has even the hairs on our heads counted. One of my colleagues at the Christian school where I teach emailed me last week. She had been in her devotions in Matthew 10.30 and she wrote this, I always thought Matthew 10.30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered meant that God knew the number of our hairs, symbolic of his intimate knowledge and care for us. But some reading and thinking has led me to believe it also means he knows our DNA that is embedded in our hair when he knitted us together in our mother's wombs. My mind is blown. Blown indeed. A molecule of DNA is approximately one half nanometer in length. A nanometer is one one thousandth of one one millionth of a meter. Cut that in half and you have the length of the average molecule of DNA. And yet, as the late great theologian R.C. Sproul used to love to say, there is not a molecule of any kind, much less a molecule of DNA, loose in the universe, 
apart from the sovereignty of God. The Dutch prime minister theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there's not a square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not stand and say, it is mine. God's sovereignty is an exhaustive sovereignty. Second, this passage emphasizes that God's sovereignty is a promise-keeping sovereignty. I want to bring out two promises of God in particular that he fulfills in Genesis chapter 41. First is the promise to the patriarch Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, in Genesis 12:3 and Genesis 22:18, that through Abraham and his descendants, God would bless all the people groups on the face of the earth. Now we know that ultimately that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the direct descendant of Abraham, through whom God is blessed and is blessing all the people groups on the face of the earth. But consider that in this passage, that promise is also fulfilled through Joseph. Because it is through Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, that God chooses to bless the people group called the Egyptians and to enable them through Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and Joseph's work afterwards to survive as a nation, as a people group during the time of the famine. The second promise of God that he brings to pass here in Genesis 41 was his promise to Joseph himself through a series of dreams God gave to Joseph recorded back in Genesis 37, where God said, one day, Joseph, and he said it to Joseph when Joseph was a young man, one day, Joseph, I will raise you up to a position of power such that other people, including your family, will bow down before you. Well, we'll see in the weeks to come the fulfillment of the family bowing down before Joseph, that part of the promise. But here in chapter 41, in an astounding way that none of us could have predicted, God fulfills his promise to make Joseph a ruler within just a few hours. God in his sovereignty orchestrates the circumstances such that Joseph is lifted from a prison called the pit to the position of second in command, second in rule, second only to Pharaoh himself in all of Egypt. What is your favorite promise in the Bible? Mine is Romans 8.32. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, together with him, 
graciously give us all things. In other words, if God didn't spare Jesus for our sakes, if that's the measure of his love for us, the giving of his only son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, then doesn't it stand a reason that God will give us everything else that we need to live for his glory? Because everything else we need is something less than Jesus. But the reason that that promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that God will most certainly carry through with the promise of Romans 8.32 or whatever is your favorite promise in the Bible is because God is sovereign. Nothing and no one and no event can stand in the way of God accomplishing, God carrying out, God fulfilling his good promises to his people. Which brings us to characteristic number three of the sovereignty of God, that it is an always good, always good sovereignty so far as the people of God are concerned. That is, so far as those are concerned who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. When I say that God's sovereignty is an always good sovereignty, I have in mind mainly the promise of Romans 8:28, so familiar to most of us, that in all things God works them together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, those who love him. In short, God works all things together for the good of those who are his people. But look, at, look with me at verse 1 of our passage, because we remember that in the promise of Romans 8:28 that God works all things together for our good. It's God who gets to define the word good, not us. And sometimes God's definition of what is good in our lives is not quite our definition of what is good for our lives. In verse 1, we read, Joseph has been in prison. The king's official has forgotten him. How long does he remain in prison? Two whole years. Two more years. A total, we believe, of 13 years Joseph spends in slavery and in prison. Why, God, how can it be good that you would extend Joseph's stay in that prison called the pit for two additional years? Maybe you love, as much as I do, the little scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which the four English children who are the heroes of the children's novel are introduced to Aslan, the great lion who is the Christ figure of the series of books. And they're introduced to Aslan by a husband and wife talking beaver. And when the beavers inform the children that Aslan is a lion, rather than a man, it makes the children more than a little bit nervous. Is Aslan a man? Asked Lucy. 
Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I'd have thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Lewis's point, of course, is that God is not safe in our lives in the sense that his sovereign workings for our good are always the workings that we would choose and define as for our good. But that's where trust comes in. Because God's sovereign purposes are always good. What was the good in leaving Joseph in the prison for two more years? Well, frankly, the passage doesn't tell us explicitly, but as Pastor Michael pointed out last Sunday, James 1, 2-4, and Romans 5, 3-5 remind us that whenever God in His good sovereignty ordains or allows suffering in our lives, like staying in prison two more years because of false charges, God's good purposes are to weed sin more and more out of our lives, to burn it off, and to strengthen, to increase our godlikeness, our steadfastness, and so forth. It's like this. Steel makers heat pig iron to about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and add about 1% carbon, and heating the pig iron so hot is intended to oxidize, that is to remove the impurities. So that what is left with the addition of the carbon is the strength of pure steel. And God in His sovereignty allows, ordains, the hard times, and you've known them and I've known them, and you may know them right now, for a thousand different reasons. But one reason is always that in His goodness, He is heating up our situation to burn off that which does not belong. So, how does God want us to respond to this always good, promise-keeping, exhaustive sovereignty of His? Well, Proverbs 3, verses 5 commands those of us who are the people of God to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Psalm 37, 4 commands us similarly to delight ourselves 
in the Lord. So I put those two ideas together. And I think that the response God wants from you and me, from his exercises of his sovereign purposes in our lives, whether they're difficult or whether they're easy, I think God wants you and me to respond with what I call delightful trust. Delightful trust in the sovereignty of God. Now you may have an objection in your heart at precisely this moment. Pastor Steve, you may say, you don't know what's going on in my life. And frankly, right now in my life, God's sovereignty feels like a hammer. And I feel like the anvil. The suffering seems almost to be beyond what I can bear. And I'm really struggling with the idea that God wants me to respond to his sovereign purposes in my life, as hard as they are, with delightful trust. What would I say to you pastorally? Two things. Number one, trust often comes before the delight. It may well be that there will be a separation of months or even years between your trusting that this sovereign work of God is good in my life and your being able, by God's grace, to delight in that sovereign work of God. Lisa Beamer, as you know, is the wife of Todd Beamer, who was killed in United Airlines Flight 93 that crash-landed near Pittsburgh on 9-11. She wrote about two months after 9-11 these words. She's a believer, walks faithfully with the Lord, as he was a believer who walked faithfully with the Lord. God's sovereignty, she wrote, has been made clear to me. When I am tempted to become angry and ask, what if and why us, God says, I knew on September the 10th. And I could have stopped it, but I have a plan for greater good than you can ever imagine. I don't know God's plan. And honestly, right now, I don't like it very much. But I trust that he is true to his promise in Romans 8:28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. My only responsibility is to love God. He'll work out the rest. That's honesty. I'm at the point of trust in God's sovereignty, but I'm not yet at the point of delight. But if Lisa Beamer were able to be here today, 
and speak instead of me, I'm sure she would be able to say, God now, after some period of time, has brought me to the point where, yes, I actually delight. Not in the event itself, let's be really clear about that. But I delight in God's sovereign working of His purposes even when it meant the death of my husband. Let me show you how this works practically in life. Two weeks ago on Thursday, I came down to the basement of our house in the northern suburbs because it had rained very heavily the night before. And there's a big construction project on the road in front of our house, and I was afraid there might be water in the basement. And there was more than I thought there would be because the sump pump had malfunctioned. And my first response to seeing the water on the floor of the basement was not delightful trust in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> my first response was to complain. God, this is not convenient. And you know that. God, you know I've got to go to work in about 10 minutes. And I don't have time to clean up this water, so it's going to sit here all day. At least a lot of it will. And that will produce a smell. So, Lord, this is not good. Well, I'll tell you how merciful the Lord is. He waited 36 hours to deal with my sinfulness. It was Friday night and I was actually preparing one of the lessons for one of the communities that I have the privilege of teaching on Sunday morning. The Holy Spirit said, uh, Steve, you remember that conversation you had with me yesterday morning? Yes, Lord. And you remember you complained. Yes, Lord. What should have been your response? Lord, my response should have been delightful trust in your sovereignty in allowing the pump to malfunction and the water to fill the basement. That should have been my response. It's not too late, Steve. <laughs> now, Lord? Now. And I have to tell you, God did that sort of roto-rooter work in my heart in that moment. And he actually changed something fundamentally as he moved me by his incredible love and mercy from the place of complaining to the place of delightful trust. God says concerning his sovereignty, and here I borrow words from the Christian writer John Piper, I do not merely want you to ponder my sovereignty, I want you to praise my sovereignty. I do not want you merely to examine my sovereignty. 
I want you to exalt in my sovereignty. I want you, do not want you merely to analyze my sovereignty. I want you to admire and to adore my sovereignty. Jonathan Edwards, the great early American preacher and writer, wrote in his personal narrative, his spiritual journal, that as a young boy sitting under his father Timothy's teaching, he actually hated the sovereignty of God. But he wrote, now that I've come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior, quote, the doctrine of God's sovereignty has often appeared to me exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Do you love to ascribe absolute sovereignty to God? When you hear the words of Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Is that good news in your heart? Does it make your heart soar to know that the God of the Bible is the sovereign God? May God grant us delightful, delightful trust in His everlasting sovereignty for the glory of his name, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.